The Unstarving Artist book is available now at unstarvingartistbook.com. Hey, Nicola, how's it going? Harry, it is so good to see you. It's going great. Thank you very much. Thank you for hosting. Yeah, well, thank you for coming. I'm really looking forward to catching up. It's been probably a few years, I think, since we last chatted. Um, yeah, a good couple. And what, why don't we start with this? Like for those who don't know uh, you, um, you should share at a high level a bit about yourself and what you do right now. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the shortest way to describe that is I'm an energy healer. So I'm an energy intuitive. So I help people release trapped emotions and recode subconscious belief. Because I know that when we do that, we can be our fullest creative expression. So I specialize in helping creatives, I suppose. That seems to be where I'm, um, where my customers are coming from. So yeah, that's what I do. I'm an energy healer. Excellent. Excellent. So, um, and we were just, before we got started, you were telling me you had just moved recently to Denmark. Uh, tell me a bit more about that. What's that been like? Yeah. So that's so amazing. My fiance is actually Danish, but he lived in Nashville in Tennessee for 10 years. So he does actually have an American passport. He's an artist. And so we have realized our absolute life's vision and dream in that we're living in a little thatched cottage that was built in 1777 in the middle of 20 acres of our own forest. I'd like to say it is enchanted. Uh, we call it the fairy tale forest and our little cottage is called the Heart Oak House. And so uh, literally two weeks ago, the fibernet cable that had been laid all the way down through the forest, it was the biggest run of internet cable I've ever seen in my life, got switched on. So we are actually having this interview literally in perfect time because now in nature, where I like to be, I've realized it's where I absolutely should be. I can connect and create group experiences with people all over the world, which is what I've been doing before, but that had to go on hold when we moved here. So we have big plans for this fairy tale forest, the Heart Oak House. We're creating a place for gatherings and ceremonies, and we've already had a few of those um, in this space, and it is freaking magical. So that is what's going on. <laughs> Are you having this call from the thatch cottage right now? I am sat in the thatch cottage right now. And just like literally six feet that way, there's an oak tree, which is as old as a thatch cottage. I mean, maybe even older. So that's at least 246 years old and it is humongous. So it's literally curving right over the thatch cottage. So as much as that goes over the top, it's going into the ground. So we're like in this kind of like circulating energy of this humongous oak tree on the corner of this cottage. It's so good, which is why we called ourselves the Heart Oak House. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, with your background, it looks so nice and modern and clean. If you told me you were in an like a flat in London or something yeah. like that. <laughs> I would believe you do. Don't um, believe. That's amazing. behind me on the wall. So he's a spiritual artist. So, um, yeah, you know, it looks, um, yeah, different inside. But actually, to be honest, the such roof needs replacing. We are basically living in an insect hotel right now. So, <laughs> so it's like, yeah, we're going to have to do that next year. Yeah, I was going to say, like, what are some of the challenges of moving into a house that's from the 1700s? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that's a renovation and our architect has just finished the plans. Thank God. No, it's actually it's actually pretty nicely together and it is dry and warm inside. It sounds like it might be a disaster, but it's not. <laughs> Good. It's funny. I mean, you know, 
I'm from America, the U.S. Um, our, our country was founded in the late 1700s. And in Europe, things just, I feel like, can be so much older. There's so much more history. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And the land that we're on, um, there's an ancient burial mound just over there, like a Viking burial mound. And they know this has been a Stone Age passing place over the little river. So we are talking about going back thousands of years on this spot that has been relatively cool. untouched. And when I go into different meditations, I can like go right in, I feel that, you know, the people who walked here, it's pretty cool. Cool. Well, let's shift gears for a second and go back into your story a bit. Um, just remind me, where are you from originally? I am English from right in the middle of England, a little town called Stratford-upon-Avon. Okay. And... When you grew up, were you uh, interested in energy? Like what sort of kid were you growing up? Yeah, I was super nerdy. Um, I, on the school bus, I was definitely a bit geeky. I did have friends, but I was still a bit odd maybe. And um, I liked physics and maths. Um, and I liked energy from the perspective of E equals MC squared, which is, you know, that famous equation. Energy equals matter times by the speed of light. So I had an understanding of energy from a very academic perspective. My family were all like, you have to do well in your education. But what I understand now is that is just not my style. I went to university and studied business studies, but I did not really go to lectures and couldn't really give a shit about it. It was like, I can't get engaged. I'm more interested in raving to drum and bass and smoking weed with my friends. And then it was all just downhill from there for a few years. Do you know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah, um, for me to get connected to what is the common denominator of the universe, for sure, energy, frequency, and vibration. That's a brilliant quote by Nikola Tesla. If you want to find the secrets of the universe, think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. So true. But it took a personal crisis for me to get interested in energy. And that's what led me to the Amazon jungle. I spent seven years backwards and forwards through a process of initiation with a psychedelic plant medicine called ayahuasca. And that was through the process of a hundred ceremonies that I sat in that took me to an understanding of the geometry of subtle energy, which makes up the fabric of our being and how that impacts us physically, emotionally, and mentally. And so that was the turning point for me. It wasn't, um, yeah, it wasn't really growing up that I had that because it was like, you have to be academic. Although growing up. What were your parents like? Were they, you know, uh, kind of, what, what were they like when you were growing up? Yeah. So. My mum is amazing and she was very creative. My dad was so dysfunctional and had so many mental health issues, addiction issues, drinking. There was like, my parents' relationship was so insanely toxic. And that's what brought me to need the serious psychedelic therapy to get over it. <laughs> you know, it's the progress. It's a process. Growing up in that intense environment of physical, emotional, and mental violence on a regular basis for someone who is highly sensitive energetically, that gets slammed into your nervous system nonstop. So it wasn't all bad. I didn't have the worst childhood, but it was not the best. And I did not have um, a stable nervous system to help me explore what I now know are my superpowers gift. And it's been up to me to recombe and recalibrate that. Um, 
I believe that you and I are senders and receivers of information. So I'm sort of digressing from your original question, what was my childhood like? But it was pretty dysfunctional. It totally dysregulated my nervous system from the word go. But there were some amazing parts to it as well. And I loved being in nature. And I think I was a bit witchy at that time in some ways. Like I remember an old fox dying in the trees down the back of our house and I waited for it to completely decompose. This obviously took quite a while until it became a skeleton. And I remember going to my dad's workshop and getting a pair of pliers and I went to its skull and I pulled out all its teeth and took it to my dad's workshop and drilled a hole in it with one of those little old school drills with the smallest drill bit I could find in its teeth and I made it into a mattress. So that is obviously a little bit shamanic in some way, in my own little bitchy <laughs> way. That was probably when I was about eight. So, yeah, that's... That was quirky. Did you ever wear that to school? Um, <laughs> I can't remember. Um, maybe not. But I did have that for quite a while and I did really like it. <laughs> when you were a kid and going through that, that period, were there glimpses and moments where you said, hey, you know what, like... Uh, something's not quite right or like I feel this tension or stress in my nerves or was it until you got into university or one of those later experiences where you kind of um, realized that there was something you needed to process or work through? Oh my God, totally. Like I was always not relaxed. I was not at ease in many ways, even though like I probably just looked exactly like I look now. Like I was really good at looking like everything is totally fine in many ways, but it wasn't. Um, and so I think because I'd lived in that state of dysregulation from when I was born, I didn't know there was another possibility. I just worked around my freeze sense in my nervous system. So for example, when I got to university, wouldn't go to any small group lectures because that would make me feel way too like frozen or if I was like asked to say something on the spot I was suddenly like I don't know I found that totally overwhelming so it was yeah choosing jobs like I would choose to be a waitress in university because then I can go and hide in the kitchen I could never work in a bar because the thought of being face to face with people that whole time was like, no freaking way. That is out of my comfort zone. And now I understand it's just dysregulation in your nervous system and trapped emotions at frequency. You know, you experience emotions as a vibration. I've got butterflies in my stomach, for example. Once you release that, oh my God, the ability to realize your destination and expression it is impossible for the universe around you not to show up in a way which perfectly fits you and feels good and that's what's happening so yeah I definitely knew there was a problem but I didn't get to sort it out I didn't think I had to sort it out until I was 31 so I was pretty late at getting around to sorting it out wow no I mean it's uh, that's so interesting I feel like there are probably people listening right now that resonate with this where there's something that is unprocessed or they've struggled with that, you know, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. I think there's a lot of people who don't have these realizations until <laughs> late 20s, 30s, maybe even later, you know. <laughs> like when I was 25 to 27, I went traveling around the world with my boyfriend at the time, who is still my dear friend, and I was going away to have an epiphany. And we were on the road for nearly two years, like South America, New Zealand, Asia. And I was like, right, 
I'm going away to have an epiphany because I wanted to change something. And the epiphany was you're not having an epiphany because you're taking the same habits with you to Colombia. And you can imagine what sort of habits I took with me to Colombia. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, <laughs> I had to allow something to shift in me to allow a new awareness to come in. And that's what I deeply thank Ayahuasca, the vine of the soul and the rope of death for. Were there, um, I want to get into that. I want to get into your experience in the Amazon for sure. I'm also curious when you were growing up, going through this period, um, university and whatnot, were there any friends that you had, uh, other women, men who helped you process some of these emotions or identify that? Because uh, don't want to be too stereotypical, but I feel like as a man, like a lot of men don't talk on like the emotional level, but it seems like women are better sometimes at like being aware of the other women that they're friends with, like struggling or having issues. Do you have any like uh, stories or anecdotes like that, that you could share? Yeah. So to give you a snapshot of my friendship group, I was definitely friends with girls in university and some of them are still my dear friends today, but I hung out mostly with a group of lads and there were like eight of us and we liked smoking weed and playing computer games and raiding to drum and bass. So we did not talk about our emotions. It was more like, you know, sarky banter until we would go clubbing and we would go raving to drum and bass and then we'd all take MDMA. And I actually think that was a kind of accidental therapy because there's an amazing book written by the founder, um, the guy who developed the formula for MDMA, and it was originally developed as a marital aid. So really, yeah. And there's an amazing book that he's written, Alexander Shulgin. And um, yeah, about the story of how he developed that. And it's kind of a personal story and also the story of his research in the lab. So I didn't know that at the time, but I know that now. And so, yeah, it was like our accidental in the late 90s. It was really like rave culture. And it was just like, it was the most incredible friendly atmosphere. And obviously when you've done quite a lot of that, We'd end up, our friends, we'd end up talking about what we thought our parents did to us and like, oh my God, how traumatized we were. And then being like, I love you, man. Oh my God. <laughs> Loving on each other. And then you'd like just want to hang out in like someone's dorm room, like for 24 hours and you just want to be together. So I think that was hugely therapeutic. Of course, sustaining those habits for a period of time, which lasted a decade, was not necessarily the way to go. But in the beginning, actually, that was hugely therapeutic. Interesting. I don't yeah, that, that's very interesting. Body, by the way. <laughs> just, What's that? And like, I'm not advising that that's something people should do necessarily. But yeah, anyway, the book by Alexander Shulgin, which gives the whole backstory of MDMA, it's very interesting. Huh. And I, I wonder if, so lads you were hanging out with, you know, having your presence there maybe made them open up and be more... Um, you know, honest about their feelings as well as the MDMA, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I think so. Um, yeah, it's a group of friends who I'm still in touch with today. And they've all like, you know, turned into respecting individuals with high powered jobs and uh, families. Do you know what I mean? But the interesting thing that drew us all together, I was always curious, why are we and our group of friends like the ravers and doing loads of drugs? And why are those the drinkers? And why are those that we're just doing our studies and being really well behaved? And it's like, I now see there was a thread of trauma within most of us. Like my friend's dad died when he was 14. My other friend's mum was a heroin addict. Do you know what I mean? It's like, 
there was a thread of unprocessed trauma which brought us all together and I didn't really appreciate that at the time that was sort of a coping mechanism for unprocessed emotions and stress and that really is the root of addiction so you have to look deeper into those um habits as to what is the root and that's why energy healing is so powerful because we can release those deep-seated traumas that you might not even consciously be able to get to deeper, deeper in the fabric of your subtle energy. Did you end up finishing university and then go to the Amazon or like what was, walk me through how you got from your early childhood to that moment. <laughs> yeah, well, I ended up going to university a year early when I was 17 and then I did finish university God knows how I actually got a good degree. I have no freaking idea. I seem to be able to cram things into my mind like for 24 hours and do well in exams. I remember even I wrote the answers all over my legs for one exam and um, was like, well, I'll go to the loo and I'll just look at my legs and like read the answers. But I was so nervous about the fact I'd written it all over my legs. I couldn't like, even read it in the toilet. And because I've written it all over my legs, I could remember it anyway. So there we are. Um, and my strategy was like, like, revise and sniff lavender and then sniff lavender in the exam and it will create some limbic system recall. Like I was trying really? any kind of hack I could possibly get my hands on. Anyway, I got a good degree, not the top, but I like just scraped. It was like 60% is the second um, like class. You're talking about kind of like the percentage of what you did in your class of what, how high you graduated yeah. kind of. And it's like, I just got bumped up into the second highest group, not the first, not the like first people. I mean, I definitely was nowhere near that. I got just bumped up into the second highest by getting 59.6% bumped up into that 60% group, which was the second highest. And everyone's like, you are so jammy. Trust you. Oh my God. I can't believe you got away with that. Um, but wait, what, what? What does that mean? You are so jammy. I've never heard that. Is that? I was like a British expression, like, oh my God, I can't believe you totally winged it, got away with it. Like, yeah, jammy. It's like, I don't, I don't even know. You just, you just skirted in, you know, by the the skin of your teeth. Yeah. No preparation, (laughs) getting away with it as usual. (laughs) So anyway, I got my degree and then I got a sales. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. Did you try to get like a job job for a little while? Yeah. No, I like got, I was a salesperson. That's what I did for like 10, 12 years. Like I did business studies and I did sales because I was kind of good at talking to people and helping them find out what they wanted. But my first sales job was for a company that I cannot even believe is still going today in a town called Bristol. And they set up conferences in South America, but they were so shady. Like, I was like fresh out of university. I had no idea. I saw an advert in the newspaper how I could get paid a lot of money and you get paid in cash. I was like, listen. And um, so I got there and they're like, oh, right. Okay. So use your first name, but think of a, make up your second name. We all, we don't use our real names here. And I'm like, okay, fine. So make up <laughs> a name and then I'm on the phones. It's like a tele, tele sales job. Again, all the sales I did in the beginning was on the phone because that was safe. My nervous system, meeting people face to face, not safe with dream. It's not safe to be seen or heard in back malarkey. So first job, like as our training, have you ever seen the film Boiler Room? 
is my I have not, but I know exactly what you're talking about. There, there, there's a new, newer one called Wolf of Wall Street, it, which is also like about Boiler Room. Yeah. Totally. So we watched that as our training video. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. So it's literally me and one other girl on a sales floor of 60 guys. There's BB guns in the office. One of the directors had a monkey. Every Friday, it's like drugs and booze. I mean, it was ridiculous. And we got paid in cash. Um, I got sacked from that job once because my terms up. And you were, what were you selling there? You were selling events in South we America? You were selling speaking slots for telecoms and e-business. So back in the day when mobile phones didn't even have content on, we were selling slots to like Nokia or Ericsson to come speak in emerging markets. Then we would go out and set up this conference. Um, yeah. I see. Yeah. That, that still exists today. I get those, I get emails and message on LinkedIn where it's like, do you want to be a speaker at this thing? And you can tell you're going to have to pay. <laughs> it's like, avoid, avoid. I must admit, my experience with those sorts of things has given me an incredibly exceptional bullshit radar. So I do thank those experiences. But I think it was also a reflection of the dysregulation, lack of boundaries and complete, um, yeah, dysfunction within me that I'd experienced growing up. The fact that I ended up doing a job like that. Do you know what I mean? It's a reflection of me. Yeah. Just thinking about that for a second. It's like you weren't conscious of this, but because of your self-image or how you thought about yourself, like we're just okay going into that environment and doing that for a while. Really? And being with like, you know, 60 guys on a sales floor and like my boss is such an asshole bully and like do you know what I mean it's like oh it was just like there is no way in a billion years I would say yes to that type of environment right now but back then it's like I had no idea do you feel like you had low self self-esteem at the time or is it more just you didn't even give yourself permission to care about your self-worth and your your kind of self-health uh, yeah that time. that's such a good question and it's so interesting because on the surface it's like of course I like myself I've got great friends we're all having a fun time we're working out where the next festival is going to be and like I know I'm loved by my friends we love each other and but I was so unaware of the root in me which was that I had never known to love myself that was my first lesson in the medicine in ayahuasca. Nicola, the booming voice of infinite intelligence in ceremony in the darkness in the Amazon. We need to learn to love yourself. I'm like, what? what are you talking about? I didn't even know that. I was so lacking in self-awareness. I didn't know that. Very interesting. Okay, so you, so you worked, that was the first job, and then you worked in sales for about a decade. Or did you decide to go to the Amazon in parallel to this, or was it the Amazon happened after that time in sales? So it happened towards, like, I carried on working in sales up until um, 2017. So, okay. Um, but I started transitioning into sales roles for companies that were much more aligned with my creativity like for smaller companies for interior design and furniture designers. And then my last sales job for five years was with a super ethical um, German organic 
medicinal plant, medicine, and skincare brand. And the ethos of that company is insane and quite frankly is um, how all capitalism should be run. Their mission statement, the way they're held in trust, the way they support local cooperatives, community initiatives, and the quality of their resources, the integrity of that company is amazing. They are not for profit for the sake of profit. So just to say, my segue in sales ended up being to something very aligned with me, but my time in the Amazon started in 2011. So it was in parallel to okay. working in sales. I then started going to the Amazon two or three times a year, taking a bit of extra unpaid holiday or um, getting a bit more time off. Got it. Got it. Um, so what precipitated that? How did you learn about the Amazon? What Was there a moment or like a crisis or <laughs> the made up crisis that you were talking about? But was there a moment where you're like, you know what, I need to... Uh, get a very different perspective oh my God, on it, my life it, it and what's going on. It was a freaking crisis. I mean, it's the perfect storm of just like, oh my God, this is just like whatever I've been doing probably wasn't working, but it was fine. And now it's definitely not working. And it was a combination of, I had to break up with my boyfriend who I'd been with for 10 years because we just love to party together. We loved each other deeply, but our lifestyle habits were absolutely unsustainable. We were king and queen of the bash and it absolutely had to stop. And I was not strong enough to not do that because that's what we were. So that was a deep grieving period, you know, to let go of something that I knew was the right thing for me, but also it was like, oh my God, that's been like my rock for 10 years. That was one thing. It's like grieving a divorce. Um, we weren't married, but you know what I mean? Then it was. You were there, you were together for 10 years. That's, yeah. I don't know in the UK, but in the US, like if you live with somebody for a while, you just basically are like common law married. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that was one thing. The other thing was my dad, my gracious teacher of what not to freaking do in life. Bless him. Um, you know, he was much older. So he was 52, I think, when he had me, but he was like drinking. When he was in his late 70s, getting banned from driving still in his late 70s, um, buzzing around the house, having accidents. My brother refused to have anything to do with him. My brother has high functioning um, autism. We have a very difficult relationship because of that. I'm also slightly neurodivergent, to be honest, I've realized recently, which is a superpower. But anyway, so it was the perfect storm of the divorce, um, not a divorce, the breakup. My dad's decline chronic depression and then death because that just makes you address everything that you've not addressed and oh yeah my insanely dysfunctional lifestyle habits just still taking way too many recreational drugs and my nervous system is completely dysregulated I had an autoimmune condition start to show up my thyroid was out of balance I had psoriasis it was just a total shit show I felt invisible yeah. So that was the crisis. So to ask, did you realize that, like, hey, I'd like to change yourself? Or was there a friend or an external force or something that, that put this in front of your face? <laughs> no, it was my own personal volition because, you know, I'm still functioning. I'm still like, you know, looking like everything's fine. And also I was hanging out with other people 
who are into doing all the same things. So you work hard and you party hard and it's like, oh my God, we're up to 11 o'clock again in the morning on a Saturday. Um, so yeah, you're just hanging out with the same sort of people. And it's not like they're not successful people. People are still like, well, it's just like sometimes in London, there is that is going on a lot. So yeah, they're functioning, but also, you know, uh, burning the candle at both ends, yeah. the extreme. Wildly out of control. And it's, you get into a spectrum where it's like, oh, well, I'm definitely not as bad as they are. Like they are hitting it way harder than me. Um, you know, so it's like, you feel like it's fine. So it was totally my own thought. And I started off addressing it with, right, I need to just physically, biochemically change what I'm eating, cut down on the booze and the drugs. And I took myself to Thailand to do some detox retreat. But emotionally, I still felt neutral. And that's when I read an article in National Geographic about shamans in the Amazon. And it was in this month of January, I read the article and I was at a party and I just heard someone say ayahuasca out the corner of my ear. And I was like, boo. And then someone else, like two weeks later, I didn't even have a conversation with them. I heard the word ayahuasca again and I'm like, ding, ding, ding. Something in me and I just booked my on my own, went to the Amazon and that was the start of seven years of working with that medicine because I knew nothing against psychotherapists. I could probably go into a psychotherapy office and tell you exactly what the problem is. That's not going to make me feel any better. I don't need to go round in circles telling you at the level of mind what is the issue. I need something deeper and I knew that intuitively. So today, that depends on where you listen to it, podcast, whatnot, like the topic of ayahuasca psychedelics, it's become almost mainstream. There's a lot of people that know about it, but I would imagine at this time, when you said it was uh, 2011, mm. um, not as well known, not as common knowledge. I feel like it would take a lot of courage to do what you did of just um, step away from your kind of traditional Western life in the UK, um, good sales jobs probably on the surface and um work through yourself in thailand and in the amazon so um, where where did that courage come from for you well it's funny i've got friends who are boys in london who are like oh my god nicola god that's crazy i could never do that that's really brave and it's like I know what shuts my nervous system down. Like I said, back in the day, it's like, I would not work a bar job, but I'd work a waitressing job. And that's like ridiculous. But then going to the Amazon, I'm like, no problem. Like that for me did not require any courage whatsoever. Like I, as much as I've had a dysfunctional growing up in many ways that have caused me to feel that some things are unsafe, it's not safe to be seen. I feel at home in the world, like I feel at home in places that other people would think are freaking dodgy. The Amazon is not dodgy. The Amazon is very safe, but it's like for me to go to the Amazon, it's like zero courage required. I'm not zero. You think no. your time, you think your time in both business, like uh, boiler room sales and also like the rape party culture you had developed maybe a finely tuned sense of where you, even if you didn't speak the language of somebody, you could tell if they were 
kind of a shady person or to get yourself out of an environment that maybe you had like that sort of um, as a skill set that you could leverage going to something that was so foreign. Is that yes, fair? You're totally. That is so spot on because it's like I have been to some festivals where, oh my God, like it, it's pretty out there of like what people get into when they're raving away and taking loads of drugs. And it's like, yeah. So for me to go to the Amazon and experience psychedelics, I'm like, that is an autumn apart potentially. So you're absolutely right. And it's so interesting because in my first ceremony, the guy I ended up sitting next to, you all stay in the same place in this circle in this big mimoka and you're drinking pitch black in the Amazon at night. But he was a perfect reflection of my shadow in that he would like, after a while, was like, I'm here because a gang asked me to murder someone and take them to the desert and bury them. I don't actually think he was telling the truth at all. I think he was doing it to get attention. And he's the perfect reflection of the first boyfriend I had in university. He was from the local city that I went to. He used to, who had a closet rat problem, I found out. So yeah, it was like going to the jungle and suddenly being surrounded by all the things that I needed to work through, like being next to this person who is a perfect representation of patterns and people that had been in my life when I was younger and I was just watching this all play out around me and um yeah it was super interesting now I'm just curious so if you got over like how does one how does one hypothetically go about uh you know you you obviously buy a plane to get over there uh you can probably get somebody to take you into the Amazon but how do you find a shaman like is it something there's just advertised or is it that you had networks or friends or somebody who put you in touch like how did that actually go about yeah so i didn't know anyone but there is a town a landlocked jungle town that is known as the jumping off point and a place that you can go so you fly into lima and then you get a smaller plane to a town called Ichutos. and if anyone wants to go and drink ayahuasca Ichutos in peru in the depths of the amazon this landlocked jungle town is the place to go when you go there is no problem to find a place to go. And is it that there's a, a bunch of different ones or is it, I guess I just, I'm, I'm just curious, like how like you know, Hey, this, this seems like a reputable or like safe you know, person to go to. No, it's constantly. <laughs> and I ended up choosing a place that actually also had a Western shaman that was working with local indigenous people. And so um, they were really good at bridging the gap. The gap. Um, the Shikubo language, the Spanish, and translating that into English and helping people from a Western culture come into that environment. So I think, yeah, that's a great question. But that's what made Amazing. me choose that. Now you can do a Google search and do lots of research. And there are so many different places, but you have to be so discerning. You have no idea what you're opening yourself up to. And as much as it's been incredibly transformative, I've also had some experiences which have been shadow word within the ceremony space that has been kind of damaging, but actually, of course, have been the greatest gift in the long run. So yeah, that's sort of like picking a good place is very important and it should not be taken lightly. Yes. Um, yeah. So for those who don't know, like, yeah, why don't you share a bit about like, what is a typical ayahuasca ceremony like? 
Yeah. So I think the most important thing to say is it is absolutely different every single time. It's the most incredible aspect of conscious medicine and the way that it works in you and with you. So it could be love, bliss, and joy, or it could be facing your darkest demon. But what I will say is now from someone who looks back and realizes how dysregulated my nervous system and how ungrounded I was, patterns of anxiety that I didn't even realize I had, I think it is so important to prepare yourself properly, understand your makeup energetically, your nervous system. Are you a grounded person? Are you not? So I just would say that. But to answer your question about how the medicine works with you, it could bring you visions. You could see um, people or themes in your life that you need to work on. So it will allow you to perhaps visit a time in your life where something was particularly traumatic and then like cry about it. Or it could allow you to um, release an emotion about something and you could set that intention. And sometimes it's a bit the medicine, like um, a vibrational wave and going through your entire body and just bring that, coalesce it into your stomach and then you can throw it up. You don't throw up every time, but that is a way to purge. It's a physical release of something energetic. And when you're in the Shibibo style, you have shamans who come around and work with you one-on-one. -on -one. So you're in the darkness, sat in the darkness, and you're sat face-to-face -face with a shaman. They're singing and moving your geometry of subtle energy to allow a new fabric to form within So it could be visual, it could be a knowing, it's emotional, um, so many different sensations. It could be anything. And it, from my understanding, I've never done it, but it can last hours. Is that fair? Yeah, so... Um, you would usually in the jungle drink at like eight o'clock at night, maybe. And that could go on till like two in the morning, maybe. It depends. But again, it's like, are you going to drink one glass or will you go back for two or three? So that again is another um, factor on how long you stay in the medicine. So what was, did you have a good positive experience the first time you did it? Yes, because it was that insight, that booming voice, which was Nicola. You need to learn to love yourself. That was met with, what? Really? I had no idea. And then it's like, let me show you. So it's like you suddenly get a sense of, oh, I'm not treating my body so good by partying all the time or I'm saying yes to working in a way that's overworking and I'm going so quickly I'm not actually bringing calm into my body on a regular basis or I'm saying yes to this relationship which is not respecting them so yeah that first ayahuasca ceremony was truly transformative and it was the start of a process which then took me seven years to truly, truly unravel and come to a sense of, I can say, I'm a bit for myself in the middle, I do love myself. Of course, I'm still hard on myself. Like, do you know what I mean? It's a work in progress for the rest of your life. But I've come to a whole new place. 
but it's that's amazing it's a long time i mean god i think i'm slow as well i seem quick but i am not <laughs> i am slow did you feel like the like calming your nervous system down and, and working on the sort of physical manifestation some of that repressed emotion did that improve and heal at a different rate than maybe some of your intellectual or uh, psychological um, understanding of your identity and yourself? Absolutely. That is a really, really good point. And um, I would say that anything we want to heal or allow to open, expand, change, shift within us as a human being has to go hand in hand with the regulation of our nervous system. If there's something you can't shift, if there's a habit you can't change, if there's a fear, emotion, mentally that you can't get through, that is because your nervous system, the energy frequency and vibration of your biofield deems it not safe. Therefore, your system will knock and freeze. So yeah, the nervous system, which is within your body and around your body, absolutely is the fundamental principle for any energetic shift at any level of your being. So when you were doing this and um, going that process, this is obviously a very experiential way to learn about these things and have these insights. Were you also reading books or trying to figure out what was happening like at, at like a physical level at the time? Or um, was it just purely experiential for you? In the beginning, it was purely experiential. Um, and then I think... I was definitely really into Tony Robbins at that time. So he was like, you know, the audio I kept consuming. But even that's quite like, you know, right, you must crush it or die, take passive action all the time. And obviously, it's the one whose perfect system is like, oh my God. I just needed to start hitting it with a freaking sledgehammer and chill out. So then I started taking professional practitioner qualification in energy medicine and different body work modalities and frequency modalities. And that started in about 2016. So five years of being in the jungle and just, you know, listening to inspiring things. And then I started really committing to a more professional um, structured way of understanding chakras, the aura, the nervous system, the electrics of the body and all that. So going back for a sec, you started in the Amazon before you were working for that German company that you felt was ethical and uh, a good way to do business and capitalism. Um, was doing these ceremonies and working yourself this way part of helping you uh, seek that sort of out an environment that was a better, better aligned with yourself? Oh, definitely. Because, yeah, that is what we're designed to do. Seek the external environment that the perfect representation of our true vibration. And we are all at our root cause, you know, helpful, loving human being. It's just some people might have a serious amount of shit made over that. <laughs> Even serial killers have got a heart. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, there, you know, there's a in the Christian Judaism tradition. There's this idea of people being sinful, um, and then 
there's another school of thought that, yeah, like, oh, you can just work through all your issues or uncover all your issues that um, we're all we're all good. And I don't know where, where I feel about that. I do feel, though, um, that, yeah, I think there's a lot of people out there, myself, we have like, yeah, trauma or problems or issues and you can work through that and you can be more present and less self-centered for sure and cause more cause less damage to other people uh, as a part of that process. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And we will obviously feel better as a result of doing that to sit fully in our own authentic energy automatically feels good to us. So yeah, but yeah, you're totally right. It's also what do we deem as good or bad? Because ultimately beyond that duality, there is a common denominator, which is an infinite force of creation which ultimately could be perceived as a frequency of love so whether it's hate or love you have to have the duality and beyond that duality it's all good <laughs> well, as a human what do you mean by that what do you mean by this the duality you're needing both of those so duality is light and dark good and bad um hate and love but it's an eastern philosophy i suppose beyond that the true nature of consciousness the prima materia of the universe is actually a foundation of love that creates everything i see so you're saying like at one sort of layer it looks like there's two different things yeah. but if you can zoom out further you realize oh they're actually part of the same it's whole that, and therefore that they're part of the divine force or god or what have you then we need to figure out how to relate to them in, in healthy, positive ways yeah, or something like it that. It must be perfect. Yeah, exactly. You totally got it. But I mean, as a human having this 3D experience to occasionally have a meltdown and like, you know, suddenly frustrating about something, that doesn't help in certain times of the day. <laughs> because that also can be used as an excuse to bypass the work that you need to do, which is in your body and in your emotions. So we need to get real about that. So, um, okay, so we, we are in the Amazon going back and forth. Um, were there any other sort of shifts for you or um, milestones that are worth calling out that happened during that period? Um, yeah, I mean, I think towards the end of my time in the Amazon, I went on retreat and I met my fiance and an ayahuasca matron. And really? they, that was kind of the final piece of the puzzle for me. I'd worked on loads of childhood trauma and, you know, things like that stuff, which took ages. My own patterns of anxiety and depression, I think. I didn't even admit or know I had depression, but actually I think I did have depression for quite a while. Um, so then the last piece of the puzzle was, okay, now I had an amazing relationship for 10 years, but it was based on patterns of addiction. And now since my father died and since we broke up, I keep getting into relationships with guys who are completely emotionally unavailable. So what does that say about me? That is reflecting me back to myself. It is telling me that I am terrified of intimacy because of what I've learned in my childhood. So that's what I wanted to resolve. And I was going there to this specific retreat with that intention and literally Martin is there. And I was like, oh. but I'm just like, oh my God, we're in huts in solitude in the middle of the jungle. No one's supposed to touch each other or like, you can talk briefly at different times, but it's very much in silence. And it's like, this is not the place 
to be meeting someone romantically, Nicola. Just freaking rein it in. And then the first morning, we were only 20 of us who were there for the retreat. We were in a line because you have to do something called a vomitivo, which is a way to start to get used to the fact you're probably going to throw up. So you're all in a line at seven o'clock in the morning in the middle of the jungle on this wooden bridge. And they give you this like spicy ginger purgative and you've got to like chug down three big bowls of it. And then you like projectile vomit over this little bridge into the jungle. And me and Martin were next to each other. So the first time we're like meeting, we like chat a little bit in the queue and then we're next to each other chugging this like ginger spicy stuff. We projectile vomit next to each other. Then we turn around and we hide by each other and go named it. And I was like, love it, love it first vomit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then it was like, we were opposite each other in ceremony. It was just like, what the fuck is going on? This is like, anyway, I was thinking, trust me, he's probably here because he's got like a massive coke problem or something like that. Because that was the pattern of the people that I've been attracting previously. And Martin has never done anything like that, maybe like once, but not at all. And I was like, so grounded and so like at total ease with who he is. And so we stayed in touch. And then we long distance dated between Nashville and London for a year and a half. And then we got to the same continent. So I would say that was absolutely set up by the universe because now we're creating this amazing place together and we're totally on our own path, but parallel paths. He's a spiritual artist. I'm an energy healer and we're co-creating something here together. So I definitely feel we were set up by the universe. So that was an exciting development that happened in the jungle. Did you feel like you really established that strong connection there in that moment? Or was it, hey, let's stay in touch and you kind of stayed in touch and later kind of realize, oh, there's a strong connection here. No, it was pretty much right. It's like, oh, right. That's all. Okay. That's happening. That's it. It's like signed and sealed. Yeah. So basically. And what was he doing in Nashville? Um, so he's an artist and he was in Nashville because of a girl. He'd been there for 10 years, um, but they weren't together anymore. So um, he had a shop there. He was, um, sell his art and sell clothing and um yeah he just had a life there basically what was it like to long distance date had you done that before i'd never done that before um yeah do you know what i think it was actually good because we were both still going through a process of our ayahuasca journeys and it almost gave us time know that we were going to be together, but actually do our own personal housekeeping first. So actually, I really liked it. It was brilliant. It was that intentional distance, which made us have conversations in a way that perhaps we wouldn't have done if we were together. And also when you drink ayahuasca, there are certain restrictions, like you can't drink alcohol or have sex and things like that. That only lasts for a short time afterwards. But I think not having that physical connection made us calibrate our relationship in a really strong way. It's interesting. I mean, a lot of folks say, oh, long distance is really hard. Don't do it. So on and so forth. Um, But, you know, I think constraints breed creativity. And it sounds like uh, it kind of, that constraint forced you to, 
establish a strong, you know, uh, psychological, spiritual, uh, interpersonal connection. And I don't know, I think that's just really cool and really kind of healthy in today's age because with like dating app culture, all that stuff, it's like, there's this sort of pressure, even if you don't want it, you think the other person want it, wants it where you need to accelerate things physically to show interest in all that stuff. Totally, <laughs> totally. Yeah, I can't even imagine. That sounds totally alarming to my nervous system. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. I was like, I think I downloaded a dating app and I was like, oh my God, am I going to do it? And I'm like, I don't want to do it. And then luckily I went on an ayahuasca retreat and I got taken care of. So thank God. <laughs> So, um, you were in London at the time. Did you say, Hey, like, why don't you come on over here? Like, how, how did you get to get on the same continent? Um, well, Martin said, I'm coming to visit you five weeks after the retreat. So he was like, I'm coming. And then I met him in Miami and then we had holidays in different places. But then, um, yeah, I can't remember how the conversation went about us getting to the same continent, but I knew I needed to move to London again take myself out of the environment where all my bad habits are. Because if I'm in the environment where there's bars and, you know, late nights, I'm not very good at saying no. My addiction issues are pretty strong. So it's like, yeah, my capacity to say no, I need to take myself out of the environment. So we knew, we thought we were going to live in Italy for a while. We actually moved into a car. We bought a car, moved into a car, Martin flew over from America, and we drove around. We drove to Sardinia. We drove around there for a while. We were looking at like little plots of land with ruined cottages. Um, but then I think we realized it made sense to come back to Denmark because he had family. And even though he'd not lived here for 10 years, it was nice to plug into something that was familiar to him but still new. So it was new for both of us in that way. But actually his family is super supportive and it's nice to have them around. So that's cool. So it's good. That's really cool. So it sounds like, yeah, you went through this great experience of relating to yourself better, working through issues, uh, healing, like you said. Um, and then was there a moment in that time where, you know, people around you started to see a difference in, and maybe come to you like asking for help or, or reaching out to you. Like, what was it like kind of in the early days of saying, hey, you know what, I might want to help other people with uh, with their issues? Yeah, I think I've always been the one who seems to be able to offer and yeah, or advice or help people. So even though I've been massively dysfunctional, I feel like I've always had that capacity to be a good listener or an empathetic person. So I think... I don't think that necessarily changed with people coming to me with issues. I think I've always held that space, but I signed up for this like four year training course, but I didn't realize it was four years. I just signed up for the first year and I was like, I'm going to do this, this amazing American energy dealer, Tomova from America. She's from Donna Eden, but you definitely won't have heard of her because it's pretty niche. But if you're in the energy world, you would know her. She came over from America and I just saw her on stage, not too far away from my house. And I was so fucking annoyed because my flatmate at the time, who I'd lived with for six years, had been up all night with friends in our living room, like smoking weed and doing drugs till like eight in the morning. And my event started at nine. So I basically had no sleep. So I got up and I went to this event with this energy reader and I'd had no sleep and I was just furious. 
but I knew it was where I needed to be. And in that moment, I just sort of like, I signed up for this year long course. I don't think I'd even taken in what it was because I was obviously had had no sleep. And when I got to start doing the course, um, they were like, oh, and now you need to bring your like massage beds because we're going to do body work. And I was like, what? We're doing what? We're actually what? We're healing people. What the hell? I did not know that. I thought we were just learning some like, you know, point acupuncture points to hold us of exercises. So that was the time when I realized something beyond me was actually taking care of making sure I was getting on the right track. And then I'd spent four years. I did the first year and then I went on to do four years of training quite intensively with this woman. So that was when I started to know that this is going to be my profession. Wow. So as you're going through this, like, I think somebody like myself, like I would, I think I'm very, I'm open-minded. I think there's a lot we don't know about the brain, about psychology, how things work. Um, but in some of these sort of alternative or homeopathic or um, I don't know what the right, you know, polite word is to say about this sort of space. I would think that there'd be some ideas where it's like, oh, I think that is probably useful. And I don't know so much about that. Like, were there any things where you were exposed to certain ideas and you said, you know what, I don't know if that's um, something that I think is helpful or um, maybe not for me. And um, yeah, can you just speak to that? Was that ever something that you came across? Yeah. So I think that four-year training that I chose in the beginning was done in such a way that it met the analytical mind. So there were lots of handouts. It was really brought down into like making this realm of subtle energy tangible, relatable from a scientific perspective as possible, as in, you know, the human biofield, the heart field is measurable. Um, all those sorts of things. And so... I think to learn in that way in the beginning suited me perfectly because it's like that fits the like academic mind that so many people come from. But now the training that I've just been through over the past two years, we started and it's way more left field. And so it's like, oh, Susan, do we have a course book? And she's like, you are the course book. <laughs> <laughs> Listens into the realm of the unknown. So, yeah, it's like, it's a journey to open up to the possibility that this field of quantum information is a valid place to be. And, you know, the principle of the observer and the observed, they're both part of the experiment, which is why science freaks out because they're like, well, we cannot say that if you, um, that person, does that every single time you get the same result. It depends on what mood that person's in. There are so many variables and you have to just trust and let go that sometimes things aren't measurable in the way that you want them to be. But interestingly, last year, uh, the Nobel Prize for Physics was won by three guys who showed that uh, information can be instantaneously transmitted over infinite distances. So information can be instantaneously transmitted over infinite distances. Obviously, we're connecting to the medium of technology. We're transmitting information instantaneously over infinite distances. But 
technology, a product of the consciousness of the human mind. What about you and me as the highly sophisticated sender and receiver of information if you so wished to develop that capacity within you? So that's just what I'd like to say. No, I love that. And I think um, if you're if you're listening right now and like I, you hear some of the vocabulary that goes using and you say, what, like, what is she talking about? I don't know. It's like, Sorry, am I making... What I've grown to appreciate is um, there can be two different people, you know, you could have a, a doctor or a scientist and an energy healer, and they would be using different vocabulary, but talking about the same thing. So just because it's vocabulary that you're not as comfortable with, they're not familiar with, doesn't mean necessarily to discard it, you know, try to be open-minded and figure out um, whether something is helpful or not. I think that's been another big insight for me is um, something something can be a very helpful idea, whether it's true or not, or even if it's false. <laughs> and especially in, in the realm of like human human psychology, like you just said, it's like there's so many variables, there's so much going on. Um, and so um, that's what I've been trying to step into. And personally, is like looking at ideas, mindsets, frameworks, and like, is this helpful? Try it out and see if it's helpful. Um, and get less hung up on like whether you can trace everything down to the absolute scientific basis or fact behind something. Does that make sense? No, exactly. Because it's like, does it work for you? And ultimately what we want to move away from, it's solely operating at this analytical mind. We want to get creative. We want to get playful. We want to get imaginative. And it's like, if you can rift with yourself with imagination, creativity, and playfulness, that's where you can truly unlock capacities for downloading information, inspiration, and allowing healing to occur because healing is creative and creativity is healing. So it's like, whatever yeah. you do, make it playful. I mean, look how playful Einstein was. He's absolutely one of my Einstein heroes. He was just such a freaking dude. And he was tapped in, man, as a sender and receiver. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, um, it's... I can only speak for myself, but I feel like it, in moments of my life where I've been really hung up on like the analytical or the logical, I think looking back, it's like often that can be symptomatic of some sort of like emotional blockage where you're just, you don't want to deal with something. Yeah, right. <laughs> and if you can just wrong. release. Is it black or white? Oh God. I just... Exactly. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's something about like, yeah, your, your nervous system is tense and you're white knuckling something and it's like maybe actually like you need to release something there and then process something yeah the control yeah totally you're absolutely right it's like that is constriction and that is control and if you truly let go of control and also know the key thing about energy is we operate from the level of mind the mind is an incredible tool but your heart is 60 times more powerful than the brain electrically that is a scientific fact your heart thinks, your heart feels, your heart knows, your heart remembers. It has all the same receptance as your brain. We just put so much emphasis on operating from the level of mind. But if we can just change that focus to release trapped emotions, recode the subconscious beliefs in our hearts and operate from this area of our electrical being, oh my God, then things start getting interesting. So... Okay, so you did this four-year deep dive training, and did you wait to start helping people after you finished that, or did you say, you know what, I think I can help people, I'm going to go ahead and start 
trying to help people? Well, as part of that training process, thank God, I had to submit case studies working on real life human beings. So throughout that entire four years and in the last year, I had to submit a hundred human case studies. So wow. um, I had, it's a very, like, I honestly think it's the gold standard of energy training. It's done it even, even energy medicine. So it was a super rigorous process. And that made sure I felt really comfortable, but still out of my depth. I was looking on people. Now I feel comfortable. Now I'm like, I'm in the zone, people. But like, yeah, it was still a bit like, oh my God, I'm not sure what's going on. Um, but now it's all good. So yeah, I did that four year training and I've done other training modalities that have like added a certain um, flavor. But what I do, I've now honed it to a process that I called heart purification. And that is how I work with people. So that is a synthesis, a distillation of all the modalities and my experience in the Amazon to take people through a process that I'm just this incredible creative capacity of the heart, which is like a brain that's 60 times more powerful. So, um, you said you work with a lot of creatives, a lot of artistic types. Um, what are some of the common reasons somebody, uh, kind of wants to come to you and work with you? Yeah. So, um, it is always something to do with, um, like it's not safe for me to be myself. It's not safe for me to trust myself at some deep subconscious level, um, it's not safe for me to be seen. It's not safe for me to be heard. So it is all, I notice that I'm saying safe because energetically to calibrate that in the frequency of your nervous system, for anything to shift, we always have to code the vibration information, it is safe. So that's really an important thing. So we've always started with it is safe and then trust, love, accept, and um, all of those key fundamental principles that ensure we are operating from our true authentic selves. Do you have a certain like breakup of your clientele? Is it, you know, a mix of men and women, mostly women? Like what sort of type of people typically are attracted to you? Yeah, I would say, I was looking at this the other day and I would say it is 75%, maybe 70% women and then 30% men. And I know it's like you've got to be able to say who's your niche and like really describe it perfectly. Oh my God, the past five years, still looking for that. Um, so yeah, it's. The, re the reason I asked about it was less about the niche. I was more, um, I think um, one thing that's been on my heart in the last year or two is just uh, thinking about let letting myself be open to the idea that uh I, while like it's i think men and women should be <laughs> equal in society and culture there are like almost i think there are some differences between how men and women relate and need healing and need help and i think that sort of um it was just interesting you said like safety a lot of stuff about safety and i i feel like that is to me it's more and i would love for you to disagree with me if you if you do like more thing that resonates with a lot of women of just needing to feel secure needing to feel feel loved and protected and like that's the source of repair and healing that needs to be happening and it's um it's, it's definitely there for men but sometimes with men it's also about they need to feel like powerful or respected or affirmed and that's also like a different sort of dimension to healing men so any any thoughts on that yeah absolutely and i totally agree with you when you come into your true expression of 
um, masculine and feminine, of which there are profound differences which should be respected, and I can talk about that a lot. Poor the masculine get the bad rap, and I love the masculine, and it needs to be honoured and revered, and we should make the masculine king as long as the masculine worships the feminine as goddess. You are only granted sovereignty if you worship the feminine as goddess. That's what I'm going to say about that right now. But going back to what you said, it is really when I go into people's energy, we are going back to that formative time in your life, like the imprints that are made between 0 and 7 or 0 and 10 are when you are not in your masculine energy. You're still being parented and receiving imprints. So ultimately at that age, when you are a defenseless child, it is often imprints from that age. Or then, you know, if someone goes through a traumatic experience like a divorce, um, you know, is it safe for you to be yourself? It depends. But I agree with you. Men do have possibly different parameters. But the emotions that I release from people are universal. Grief, sadness, anger, frustration, helplessness, hopelessness, humiliation, abandonment. All of those things, the, the emotions are universal, but yes, perhaps the, um, the themes can be more specific depending on the masculine or feminine, but when you take it back to that childhood, it really, again, is universal. The reason I, I was wanted to get your thoughts on that, like one thing I've noticed in my practice with my clients, you probably recall this, like one of the things that I teach is um, how to do sort of for lack of a better term, social selling, where you use social media to get out there, build relationships, connect with people, get them on calls. Um, and honestly, this isn't scientific. Like I haven't done like a full survey of my clients, but I do feel like like uh, some of the, the women that I work with, I think they have a harder time um, doing that. And I don't know if it's that, uh, I don't know where that comes from, but it's like something about putting yourself out there, uh, talking to strangers, Maybe having some strangers say things to you that you don't really want to to receive. Maybe there's some energy they're giving you that's more like on a sometimes you know like a uh, interpersonal um, sexual dimension, what, whatever. And then you get that, and and they can't work past it and and uh, deflect that energy and then step into learning that skill. Um, so I'm always open open to ideas about like how to how to work on that. But I think it's just a Something that was on my mind, I just wanted to share that and get your thoughts yeah, on that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And everyone is completely unique. Everyone's energies are completely unique. So although I have a framework and a process, when I go into every single session with people, I am diagnosing, I have different charts that I've put together and the charts that I've used from different trainings where I am individually assessing the fears. I've got like a hundred different fears that will have a unique frequency. I'm reading how that, how your biofield responds when I put that into your field. So in answer to that, everyone is unique. So I can't give you a universal answer because what's right for Charlotte is different for Jane in terms of, right. you know, what has caused that response. The response is the same, but what is the root behind it? But what I will say... That sort of response of like paralysis or freezing up or, or just not taking action, like perpetual procrastination. In your experience, would you say that that is 
yeah, often there's some sort of rooted issue or trauma in the past that hasn't been processed. Absolutely. I mean, I am like the queen of fridging procrastination. I'm way better now, but like back in the day, oh my God, it was painful. And I now know I do have ADHD. So that has something to do with it, which is why even more regulating my nervous system. But the roots of procrastination is 100% always something emotional. Something in your system says it is not safe for me to move forward into this space. Therefore, I am going to dream. So until you release the frequency of the emotion that is literally in your field, emotions, energy, emotion, there are very simple ways to release that from your field, then you can possibly overcome that through mindset, but if not at the level of mind, until you shift the energy, it's very difficult to totally, truly, truly shift. You've got to go through an embodied experience. And so you could like really force yourself to practice, but it's like energy work and direct experience and embodied experience that will get you through that. Mindset and mind is not always enough. Have you heard of the book? Um... The body keeps score. I mean, yeah, this yeah, book. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I just recently read. I think I read it all. I, I know I kind of I blitzed through it, but um, for those who aren't familiar with this idea, <laughs> what's the that? Title gives the clue. Gives you know gives the end away. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you get get it from the title. But um, one of the ideas for it that I thought was interesting is in the animal kingdom. You know, if there are animals like a like a deer, and if a deer okay. gets jumped on or you know there's a uh, some sort of threat a uh, predator that comes into their environment obviously their whole system freaks out you know their brain dumps all these um uh, uh what is it called um oh hormones and, and things are just going haywire yes. and then if they do end up you know surviving and escaping that uh these uh the biologists have seen that what they do is they literally will shake their body they will do these physical motions that sort of help like purge out yeah, that from their system. Absolutely. And a big part of this book's idea is that like we as human beings, we have these fight or flight moments, but then we don't like dump all the sort of yeah. emotions and the uh, the the hormones and process them. So uh, it just makes me think exactly what you're you're talking about here. Totally. We have no way of decompressing it. So it's like yeah. How are you going to shake it off? Or, you know, children are so much more able to allow the vibration, the wave of the emotion to run through them, and then it releases. So just like animals. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I'm very familiar with that principle. And what do you think about the idea? I've also heard that, you know, somebody is fidgeting, right? They Maybe they play with their ring or they bounce their knee or something like that. Do you, do you have you heard that's an idea? Is like there's something that, that needs to be processed because you're, you're trapping that energy in that movement. Have you heard of that? Yeah, no, totally. It's like nervous energy in some way. And it depends on like, I mean, my God, I'm much better these days because my energy is hugely balanced. But I was the biggest nail biter. Like, I always remember my mum being like, Nick, can I stop biting your nails? I'm like, oh my God, I can't. Obviously, our house is completely destabilized and dysfunctional. dysfunctional so it's like, no freaking surprise I'm biting my nails. But um. <laughs> Yeah, so absolutely. And interestingly, the highways of energy in your body are related to different organs and meridians. So maybe you're biting this finger or maybe you're twizzling that finger. And that gives you a clue as to what energy system is over-energized or out of balance, depending on where you're like fidgeting or kicking. But yeah, that is definitely huh. a sign of nervous energy. And the key solution to that 
is to balance the meridian, perhaps that that's related to, or more easily and effortlessly get grounded. People in the modern world are not grounded. If you're spending time on electronic devices for even an hour, you will become ungrounded. Your bio field will start to lose its structural integrity. So as a human race, we are very ungrounded. So get grounded and you can just really that energy into the ground, bare feet on the ground. Is this the idea of like, you know, like stepping out in, in grass with your shoes off, that type of thing? Well, or is ideally, it more than that? I mean, yeah, that would be, we are designed to live barefoot on the earth. So that would be the best way forward. But if you're in a high rise, there are different energy techniques you can do, at least to like get the energy off your body and ensure the polarity of all the cells. Every cell in your body is like a battery. Ensure the alignment of the polarity allows energy to flow down and out of you. So taking a shower can be a really good thing or putting your foot in some water. Um, even using stainless steel on the soles of your feet can kick that alignment of polarity back into play. But it depends on, you know, are you often ungrounded? Do you feel a bit frazzled? In other words, don't be on electronic devices often, you know, or um, it depends on what your experience of what grounding means to you. But releasing anything that is a shock in the system, you absolutely need to ground to let that release into the earth or into the floor where you are. Very interesting. Um, let's shift gears for a second. You know, one thing I'm just noticing in this conversation, which I think is fantastic about you and your, your story is you have this very interesting worldview perspective, um, but you also seem to be able to get clients, um, grow your practice. Um, so for other creatives and artists who are out there listening, how have you been able to, in a healthy way, you know, uh, pursue sort of that, this, um, heart centered, uh, focus and, and thinking and leading with your heart, but then also having sort of the discipline needed to get clients and, and grow your practice? Yeah, that is a very good question. Um, I would say that I know this is exactly what I'm supposed to do. And so I have been so focused on this is how I'm supposed to help people from the word go. And it doesn't matter whether I'm growing quickly or slowly. I know what I'm doing is solid. And as I gain a deeper understanding of my nervous system, it means it's okay for me to go slow, but I'm still growing and I'm connecting to clients. And I'm doing that because I'm offering something that they seem to like. And I yeah. have to say, most of my in-person flights in Copenhagen are coming through personal recommendation. And of course, that's amazing, but that is a slow way to grow your business. But that's fine because as I'm expanding into my comfort zone, that is like growing at the right rate where it's like, yeah. I've got the perfect number of clients every week for me to um, really offer them something truly profound. And then, I mean, I got lucky on YouTube, I have to say. I made one video four years ago and I've made like maybe 25 videos on YouTube. And that has just been an absolute, that set up my email list because now it's had like 100,000 views. So it's like, that was my, that set up my email list. And I knew from the beginning that setting up an email list is obviously a very good way to get clients as well as building personal relationships. So what I learned from you about building personal relationships, that's awesome. And then having an email list. Um, because I think as long as you provide 
incredible value and service. You don't have to have a big email list to make a sustainable business at all. So I think that's doable for anyone. I think, um, you know, you didn't mention this as well, but like you've got, <laughs> for lack of a better word, this great energy, a lot of charisma. Um, is that something that you've always had or did you develop that through this healing work that you did? Did, did part of it come from your own experience in sales? I mean, where, where does that come from? Yeah, I think I have, like, I, I always like to say that my growing up had like, my dad was totally checked out with massive dysfunctional issues. And my mum was wonderful in her own ways. And so just like totally destabilizing for my nervous system. But I had a dog growing up. He was amazing. So I always like to say I grew up dog. Um, because <laughs> he was a total legend. So I like to think my personality has become, because I was so highly sensitive, I just imprinted his nature. And he was just such a freaking legend. So yeah, I'd like to put it down to my dog cheek. <laughs> I love that. Like, That's not the answer I expected, but I'd love that. That's awesome. He was a cross between a Labrador and an Alsatian. And he was just, yeah, he was just totally enjoying life. So pure, pure love, pure energy. Yeah. So I think it's been in my bone. Um, I'm just now directing it in a way which is definitely more the true expression of myself. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that personality, that charisma is a foundation, but then doing this inner work to get to a place where you're aligned with what you want to be doing, what your, your vocation is now is allowing that to kind of manifest in the best way yeah, possible. And it's like, it's safe for me to be seen most of the time. It's safe for me to be heard. I trust myself. I love myself. I know who I am. It's like for some people, I don't know if that comes naturally or if it just happens, but it's been a hard freaking work for me to get to that yeah. square one. So yeah, I'm at square one. I think you mentioned, uh, you know, your clients coming to you in Copenhagen and it being perhaps quote unquote slow. I mean, slow is a relative term, but I love that idea. You said it. it's like, um, one of the coolest things about businesses is it, um, allows you to work on yourself. And it's like when you have worked on yourself and done enough work to be in a place to receive a, a certain number of clients or a certain amount of growth, then the growth happens. Cause it's almost like the need and the growth is always all around us. It's like, are we ready? Are we aligned to to take advantage of Absolutely. it? Absolutely. You know what I mean? Totally. Because it's not <laughs> being safe for me to receive that many. No, it's like, I can see 10 clients of it. That's fine. And I can run some great program. Um, exactly. I've just got back to you because the internet wasn't here for a year in the forest. So I'm like, I've sort of had a year just to like be in nature and that has totally changed my biofield in a way which makes me more powerful and able to tune in so it's all perfect it's like it's all perfect as long as we surrender to the fact it's imperfect at any moment it really is so i know what i'm building is super strong and i know it's going to be powerful so i'm not in a rush it's like just make it really freaking strong at the foundation and it's going to be good I love that. I love that. Well, Nicola, it's been so much fun chatting with you a minute, catching up. For those who are curious about you and want to learn more, where can they find you? Yeah, thank you. It's been so fun. I love that we've reconnected and I enjoyed your program so much. And it was so helpful for me and my fiance. I sort of like shooting him and did it on him too, which is... That's, what, what was helpful about it? Just curious. Um, so it's really helpful because it is so good to have a structure and a process to go through to help you 
um, distill the essence of what you're doing to help communicate to people. And of course, that will always evolve, but you have that engineer brain, that software engineer brain. And for someone like me, it's like, right, somebody just please put me in the funnel and I can go through the structure. So, and you also are so compassionate and you're different. You're not like a bro marketer. So there's something different about you and that's really good. So thank you for that. That's that's very kind. I it's it's uh, I appreciate hearing that, and it's always interesting to see like what of what you put out there, people remember or or made an impact for them. So it's always interesting to hear that. And for folks who are listening, like uh, Nicola was one of my last kind of consulting non-artist clients in that phase before I started working with more visual artists. Um, but I thought you know your background and what you do is so creative and interesting. I thought our audience would definitely be interested to hear about that. Um, but yeah, you're um. In that older version of the program, I don't do this as much with the artists, but um, I yeah, I think there were some really good exercises on like um, basically being super systematic about the words you choose to describe what you're doing and get to the essence of where, what benefits you're providing to your customer. And it was so much fun to come up with that framework because it allowed me to um, take something that is very touchy-feely, uh, speaking to people's hearts, which is obviously like messaging and like how you say stuff, but then uh, creating this nice foundational structure, this skeleton where anyone could come in, like an energy cre- uh, healer to somebody who worked with musicians to uh, dating coaches or whatever. And it's like, use that same framework to distill what they're doing down and provide much more clarity to their audience about what they're doing. Um, yeah. So it sounds like that was, is that what you were referring to? Yeah, totally. It's so important. So yeah, that was a um, super useful process. And you also had some really good mindset in there as well, which I thought was good. Awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah. So back yeah. to you. If people want to learn more about you, where can they find yeah. out so, more um, about you? My name is Nicola Energy. Um, so you can find me on Instagram as Nicola Energy. My website is Nicola, N-I-C-O-L-A dot energy. So not dot com not.com.uk it's dot energy nicola.energy and also on facebook nicola energy coach so anything nicola energy i think i come up basically so you can google me and i've got quite a lot of videos on youtube as well nicola energy <laughs> love it all right well thanks so much for chatting and uh let's catch up again soon yeah thank you so much how are you take man bye all right bye everybody Thanks for tuning in today. If you haven't picked up a copy of the Unstarving Artist book, go ahead and pick up yours at unstarvingartistbook.com. See you next time.